Our scripture reading this morning is taken from the book of Exodus, chapters 2, 3, and 4. That's Exodus, chapters 2, 3, and 4. The verses are the 23rd to the 25th verses. And in chapter 3 is the first verse to the 15th verse. And chapter 4 is the 10th verse. After a long time, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned under their slavery and cried out. Out of the slavery, their cry for help rose up to God. God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God looked upon the Israelites and God took notice of them. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led his flock beyond the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of a bush. He looked and the bush was blazing, yet it was not consumed. Then Moses said, I must turn aside and look at this great sight and see why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, yeah, I am. Then he said, come no closer. Remove the sandals from your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said further, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their tax masters. Indeed, I know their suffering. And I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the country of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. The cry of the Israelites has now come to me. I have also seen how the Egyptians oppressed them. So come, I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? He said, I will be with you and this shall be the sign for you that it is I who sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God on this mountain. But Moses said to God, if I come to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your ancestors 
has sent me to you. And they asked me, what is this mean? What should I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said further, first, you should say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, thus, you should say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my title for all generations. But Moses said to the Lord, oh my God, I have never been eloquent neither in the past, nor even now that you have spoken to your servant. But I'm slow of speech and slow of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, who gives speech to mortals? Who makes them mute or deaf, seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to speak. But he said, oh my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, what of your brother Abraham, Aaron, the Levite? I know that he can speak fluently. Even now he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, his heart would be glad. You should speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you what you should do. He indeed should speak for you to the people. He should serve as a mouth for you, and you should serve as God for him. In your hand, this staff with which you should perform the signs. The Lord bless the reading of his word. We're continuing our uh, readings with the narrative lectionary, which um, I've been liking to use here at Bloomsbury for the last couple of years now. We spend time in the Old Testament between autumn and Christmas, hearing the story of Israel. So we were in Genesis last week, and we were in Exodus this week. And then uh, after Christmas, uh, we follow the, the life of Jesus through to Easter, from birth to resurrection, uh, and then do other stuff over the summer. So that helps contextualize where these readings fit into the way we're doing the liturgy this year. I, I hope that's helpful. Um, there's a wonderful scene in the TV show, The Big Bang Theory, where the lead character, Sheldon, is showing his girlfriend, Amy, one of his all-time favourite movies, its Raiders of the Lost Ark, only to have it spoiled by her analysis of what she's just seen. According to Amy, the movie has what she rather dismissively calls a glaring story problem. She tells Sheldon, in no uncertain terms, that Indiana Jones plays no role in the outcome of this story. When he looks at her in horror, she explains, if Indiana Jones weren't in the film, it would turn out exactly the same. 
And then to prove it, she goes on, if he weren't in the movie, the Nazis would still have found the Ark, they'd have taken it to the island, they'd have opened it up, and they'd have all died, just like they did. The end. And the question I want to pose for us this morning is a similar one to the challenge from Amy to Sheldon. What role does God play in the outcome of the story of your life? Does God's presence in my story, in your story, in our story, actually make any difference? Does it improve things? Does it make them worse? Is it indifferent? This is a genuine question, as they say on Twitter these days, because one of the accusations often levelled at people of faith is that the world would be a much better place if we could just rid it of the idea of God. So let's journey back to ancient Egypt and the story of Moses in the wilderness to see if we can get some insight into the significance or otherwise, of God's presence in the story of humanity, and then off the back of that, perhaps reflect on the significance of God's presence in our lives. Liz and I recently went to see the show, The Prince of Egypt, which is showing just round the corner from here at the Dominion Theatre. Uh, first things first, I absolutely love the DreamWorks movie, but the stage show certainly isn't the movie. Sure, uh, the great songs from the movie are all there and are performed beautifully. Um, the dancing is everything you would expect from the West End. It is energetic, it is sexy, it is creative. Uh, the chariots scene is particularly clever with actors tumbling, uh, playing the chariots and the racing horses. And then there are the additional songs for the stage show added in to the score from the movie, also written by Stephen Schwartz of Godspell fame. Uh, he also wrote the songs for the original Prince of Egypt movie. And some of these songs are great. Footprints in the Sand, Always on Your Side, fantastic. They add to the relationship between the two princes and I think are worthy additions. But the most interesting new song for the stage show is Moses' song, For the Rest of My Life, where he rails at God for making him the instrument of God's vengeance against the Egyptians. I'm not going to try and play it to you and I'm not going to try and sing it to you, but I will just read you some of the words. This is Moses, uh, cry to God uh, for what has happened as the process of the Exodus has gone through culminating in the death of the firstborn Egyptians. For the rest of my life, says Moses, I will have to live with this. For the rest of my life, I'll have to face the part I played. These faces filled with grief and despair, every morning when I wake up, they'll be there, seared into my memory with a cruel burning knife. For the rest of my life, there's a weight on my soul, like a pyramid of stone. There's a weight on my soul, a ransom never to be paid. The crimes I do, I do them in your name. I feel just as guilty, all the same, like a brutal soldier who does anything he's told. There's a weight on my soul for the rest of my life. When you know you're in the right, it's so easy to be wrong. You have to win the fight, so you close your mind and heart up tight and you go along, tell yourself you're saying, staying strong. You ramp up your ferocity, excuse any atrocity, but once you've won, you have to live with what you've done. For the rest of my life, I will have to live with this. For the rest of my life, these questions haunting me like ghosts. Does a noble end mean any means will do? Is your power the only reason to follow you? 
And one final question I see no answer to. For the rest of my life, how will I get through? Unlike so many of our victims, I have the rest of my life to get through. For me, this exploration of Moses' guilt and shame and anger is not only the high point of the musical, but also the gateway to where I think it falls down theologically, because it reveals the underlying theology of the show, which is this, that the only baddies in this story are the deities, the gods. Moses, in the end, the way the West End show tells the story, is an innocent puppet, to quote Pontius Pilate from Jesus Christ Superstar. And we see exactly the same thing happening in the show with Pharaoh. Possibly the most bizarre twist in the musical is the revisionist retelling of the relationship between the character Ramesses and Moses. Ramesses comes across as a thoroughly nice, if slightly naive, ruler who wants to do nothing more than give Moses everything Moses is asking for, but he's constrained by the ghost of his father and the demands of the high priest. Several times in the musical, Ramesses releases the Israelites only for a word from the gods to countermand his decision or, um, and send the army in to oppress the Israelites instead. Well, this in the end is playing to a zeitgeist that sees all the evils of human warfare and violence as the end result of religious belief. The subtext is clear. If only Moses and Ramesses had been left alone by their gods to become the mature, fully integrated human beings that they were longing to be without divine interference, then everyone would have lived happily ever after. They'd have got away with it if it hadn't been for those pesky gods. So I have mixed feelings about the West End version of the Moses story. It feels like a betrayal of the biblical story. It sanitizes the complexities of the Passover. It excuses the excesses of the empire. And ultimately it silences God as a player within the narrative, within human drama. From the point of view of the show's version of the Moses story, the answer to my question is clear. God's presence in this story makes things considerably worse. But I'm not convinced that this does justice to the text. So rather than perhaps coming at it through the lens of West End glitzy theology, let's go back to the biblical story to see what we can find that might help us answer the question of whether God's presence makes any meaningful difference to the human experience of life. Last week, you may remember, we were with Jacob on the run in the wilderness, receiving his vision of a stairway to heaven. Well, today we're with Moses and we're back in the wilderness with another of those anti-heroes of faith, another man on the run from the consequences of his actions. And as with Jacob, the Moses we meet here isn't all that likable as a character. He's not long murdered an Egyptian. He's run away from his people in slavery. He's turned his back on his family. And we meet him as he finds himself in conversation with God, who has rather strangely appeared to him in the form of a burning bush. Just as an aside here, Liz and I visited Mount Sinai a few years ago, 
and we went to St Catherine's Monastery, which is on the supposed site of Moses' encounter with God. And whilst we were there, we were shown a bush that grows there. And the guides told us with absolute seriousness that this is the bush that was burned but not consumed. This is where Moses met God. In fact, our guide uh, was able to break some twigs off and pass them around and give them to us. And so we have at home some twigs of the burning bush, allegedly. I also couldn't help noticing that uh, just alongside this tourist attraction of a bush uh, sits a rather prominent fire extinguisher. Clearly, if there are any further fiery theophanies in that place, God's presence will be quickly extinguished. But back to Moses, who we meet arguing the toss with God about God's call on his life. He's making all the excuses he can to avoid having to take responsibility. From his protestations about his lack of public speaking ability to his straightforward cry, oh Lord, please send someone else. Moses doesn't want to listen to the voice that is telling him to grow up, suck it up and get stuck into making amends and making the world better. What's interesting, though, is that God allows Moses agency here. God doesn't just say, do it or else. Rather, God responds to Abraham. He appoints Aaron. God works through Moses' flaws. It's more like a dialogue or a dance or an improvisation than it is a clear-cut call with detailed instructions. And there's something comforting in this, I think. God works through us, not in spite of us. God's will is done, but God's methods are not fixed. The Moses from the musical, who feels that God has forced him against his will into an impossible situation, is not quite the Moses of the book of Exodus, who is called to reluctantly play his part in God's great work of freedom and liberation but who in the end chooses, somewhat reluctantly, to follow the call of God on his life. I've spent a lot of time with people discerning the call of God on their lives. Some of them, um, am I called to pastoral ministry or not? But for most of us, that's not the question. But there is still a call of God on our lives. And do we hear it? And how do we respond? And how does God respond to us as we respond to God I think crucial in all of this is what is known as the doctrine of continuous revelation. The idea that not everything that can be known about God has already been made known. Abraham had heard God's call, but it was Moses who heard God's name. There is more to know about God in our world, in our lives as God is progressively revealed through God's ongoing relationship with humans. So when Moses asks for God's name, the response he gets is both fascinating and revealing, but also rather mysterious. I am who I am, says God. Another way of putting it might be, I am the one who is. Or possibly just, well, I'm me, says God. The point is clear, which is that God is known 
not by a personal name, as you and I are known, but by the simple fact of being there. The starting point for understanding who God is, is a conviction that God is. I was listening to a Radio 4 science programme recently. Um, Jim Al-Khalili was interviewing Professor David Eagleman about his research into human perception. And David Eagleman's point was that everything we see, taste, smell, touch and hear is created by a set of electrochemical impulses in the dark recesses of our brains. And that what we call consciousness is our brain's attempt to identify patterns in these signals and to attach meaning to them. From a purely subjective point of view, the world does not exist outside of our own brains because our entire perception of the world takes place within the darkness of the inside of our skulls. And yet, we might choose to say that God is. I am, says God. God is, we respond. And this deceptively simple statement of naming God's existence is a statement of faith that there is something in this world that is definitively beyond ourselves. Something other than me and my own perception of reality. The statement that God is, the great I am statement of God's existence, is a statement that God is the one who is truly other to and external from ourselves. The next question then, and it's a question predicated on the existence of the divine other, is what is this God who is beyond me like? Is God loving or hateful or angry or forgiving or controlling or indifferent? And these are the questions of theology. These are the secondary and subsidiary questions to the primary question of whether God is. Because if God is, then I am not all that there is. And then everything else that is the construct of global theology and all the world religions follows on from that. And so Moses, asking God's name and hearing the answer, I am, is invited into a world where he is no longer the subjective master of his own universe. In the story, God is not encountered in the abstract as a kind of philosophical transcendent idea of existence. Rather, God is made known through relationships with humans. We hear it over and over again. God is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God is the God of Moses' ancestors. God is encountered through a community of faith. And there's a profound truth for us here, which is that we do not encounter God alone. Even when, like Moses, we are alone on the mountain in the wilderness, we are part of a longer story of God's revelation. Even when during lockdown we were gathering for worship on our own or in couples before computer screens separated from one another, we were part of a community of faith. Therefore, we always 
encounter God in the context of God's self-revelation through our own communities of faith. Sometimes I hear people wondering why we should bother with church. After all, if God is everywhere, surely we don't need to go to church. But I think Moses' encounter of God in the context of his faith community speaks of a truth that God is made known through the relationships that God forms. God is discovered in and through others. And God's self-revelation occurs in the context of God's people crying out for justice. Set us free, cry the people of Israel. Where is the justice, cry the people of God. And into that, God is made known. It is in relationships with people that God's action in human affairs becomes manifest because God is revealed as a relational being who is known in the effects of calling and claiming people to become people of faith in a faithless world, making real in and through their lives, in and through our lives, the shared conviction that God is. So how should we respond? What can we discover from this story of Moses that might help us understand our own lives before God? Well, if we're looking for God's action in human history, we see it here in Moses' response to the call of God on his life. Without the voice from the burning bush, without the revelation of God breaking into his world, Moses would have stayed as a shepherd in Midian and the Israelites would have died in slavery in Egypt. But as God forms relationships, as God calls into being communities of faith, as God is made known in and through people, so lives are transformed and then the world is changed. And we, like Moses, are called and enlisted to this task of bringing God's freedom to those who are enslaved. As God's promised covenant faithfulness is enacted in and through human relationships. Sometimes we long for God to act, for God to intervene. And those who would question God's existence rightly points to the fact that the evidence for God's direct intervention in human affairs is conspicuous by its absence. Well, here's the thing. I do not believe in an interventionist God. Because that is not the God revealed to Moses on Mount Sinai. God does not just click God's fingers and release Israel from slavery. God works through people. The God of the burning bush is a God who works through flawed and fallible humans, whispering to them from the flames of revelation that there is more to this world than they can see on their own, and calling them to action that brings liberation to others. This is how God changes the world, through people like Moses and Jacob and you and me. When God speaks salvation, God is made known through people. John's gospel grasps this most clearly in the language it uses to speak of Jesus. Those of you who have been joining me on Monday nights for my biblical studies masterclasses will know that in John's gospel, Jesus is described as being the word of God. And that seven times in the gospel, Jesus describes himself using the words, I am a deliberate echo of the revealed name of God to Moses on Mount Sinai. The God who is encountered by Moses 
as the God of community and relationship is the God of Jesus, God's word spoken into human flesh. This underscores that God is known through personhood, through relationship, as God encounters people personally. The God of the burning bush is known in Jesus as word incarnate and word embodied. And Jesus calls people into relationship with himself and through him into relationship with God. As John's gospel puts it in chapter 15, as the father has loved me, so I have loved you, abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. And so God is revealed in community, in people, in relationship, in Christ, in the fire on the mountain. But the revelation of God has to go somewhere if it is to be transformatory of human lives. Otherwise, what's the point? Does God's presence in the story of human existence make any difference? Does it improve things? Does it make them worse? We're back at that question I started with, and the answer is there, staring us in the face in the story of Moses. The story of the Exodus, Moses leading the people from slavery to freedom, is the foundational story of God's deliverance of all those enslaved to sin and oppression. What happens next for Moses as he hears God's call to look beyond his own world and to consider the world and the needs of others is the same thing that happens in our lives as we learn to listen to the divine voice that calls to us too. And it is that people are delivered from their enslavement to sin and from their oppression. Just something to note here, though, which is that the Israelites in Egypt are not enslaved by their own sin, but rather by the sinful actions of the Egyptians towards them. Not all sin is to do with personal morality. There can be structural and systemic sins in our world that oppress and demean and distort and destroy. And God's intent for freedom and liberation is every bit as much focused on those as it is on the sins of omission or commission that occur at the scale of our personal lives. And of course, there is a relationship between the personal and the communal, both in terms of sin, but also in terms of liberation. Just as our personal actions of sinful disregard for others can be the cause or continuation of their oppression, as Pharaoh discovers, to his cost in the story of the Exodus. So personal actions of turning towards those in suffering can become the method of God's will for liberation, taking shape in our world and in the lives of others. The movement from death to resurrection, from enslavement to freedom, is written through the story of the Exodus just as it is made known in and through the life of Christ. The God who is made known in the wilderness as the divine other, who is encountered in relationship through the community of faith, who calls us to become agents of liberation. This is the God at work in our world by the spirit of Christ, drawing us from life to death and inviting others to hear that call and respond.
The God who is known in the wilderness is the God of the cross, the God of suffering, and the God who takes action to deliver those who live in suffering. So what difference does God make to the story of humanity? My answer this morning is all the difference in the world. And we are an intrinsic part of that story. We, like Moses, are called to play our part in the salvation of the world, the liberation of the oppressed, and the coming of God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. As we pray, so it be. Amen. Earlier we heard Solomon reading and in that um, God spoke and said, I have heard the cry of my people, so let us pray and uh, think as, as the people of Israel did then of us crying to God now. So let us pray. We cry to you, God. We lament to you. Because of the things that make us sad, because of the things that worry us, because of the things that keep us awake at night. In our world, Lord, we particularly worry and keeps us awake. We're scared, Lord, of climate crisis that is engulfing our whole world. And we, we come to you and ask you to help in this problem, Lord. And we pray that you would hear us. We pray for leaders as they gather next month at the uh, COP26 uh, gathering, Lord, meeting in Glasgow. We pray for courage. We pray for those who really do have conviction about what needs to be done. We realize this is a crisis that needs everybody to, to work together, Lord, and we need leadership in this, and we ask for your help. We thank you that there are possibilities to change and there are solutions. We pray, Lord, for the uh, leaders to encourage the enactment of those. Lord, in the world, we also pray for the effects that the pandemic is having on people and their livelihoods. Those who've lost their jobs, those whose income is being curtailed, those who depend on tourism in other parts of the world and the tourists aren't coming. We pray, Lord, for these people. We pray for the rollout of the vaccines. And particularly now, Lord, we pray for the rollout in poorer countries and notably in Africa, where very small percentages of people have received vaccine yet. And we pray, Lord, for leadership and for the availability of vaccines and for the whole logistics of getting these two people and into yeah, people to be receive them. In our country, Lord, and our city, we pray for those who are worried by rising costs and how to make ends meet. And we pray again, Lord, for our leaders to help in leveling up and in um, including all in, in the society. We also pray for real change in attitudes of those who run our police forces and in the police themselves 
And in particular, Lord, we pray for the safety of women and we pray for change to uh, take effect uh, in the coming days. And coming home, Lord, we pray for our own church and we cry to you, Lord, we pray for growth. We pray for growth in depth. We pray for growth in the impact that we have. We pray for growth in our spirituality. We pray for growth in our community. We think of the, what Simon mentioned, that God continues to reveal himself to us and through to us through each other. And we pray, Lord, for more of that. And we pray for us to be open to that. We pray for our forthcoming church meeting in three weeks' time. We pray for deacons' meetings and the deacons, and we pray for the elections of new deacons. And in, amongst our community, Lord, we pray for those, and particularly we remember Dave and Sandy in Canada and Dave recovering from this back injury. We pray for Peter's mum, and we pray for Peter caring for her. And we remember others in our church life um, who are suffering and particularly in health wise, we lift them all to you at the moment. And those that you know, pray for them. And finally, Lord, we pray for ourselves. We pray that we would grow in faith. We pray that we would grow in hope. And above all, we pray that we would grow in love. And we lift these things to you as we cry to you again, and we pray that you would hear us in Jesus' name. Amen.